Hello, and welcome to Asia Inscripted. I'm Vivian Su. And I'm Isabel Beleza. And this is U.S. Asia Institute's summer podcast series, where we cover key stories of the day with diverse speakers with first-hand knowledge of Asia. We have with us today Gregory Poling, Director of the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, or AMTI, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. The Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative is an interactive, regularly updated source for information, analysis, and policy exchange on maritime security issues in Asia. It aims to promote transparency in the Indo-Pacific to dissuade assertive behavior and conflict and generate opportunities for cooperation and confidence building. In these clips, Gregory speaks to Isabel and me about the South China Sea and U.S.-Philippine relations. Please be reminded that the U.S. Asia Institute is a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization with no policy agenda. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the U.S. Asia Institute. We fully recognize that there are a variety of names used for the islands and maritime territories in the Indo-Pacific region, but we'll use the term South China Sea for the purpose of this podcast. This episode begins with Gregory introducing himself. I'm a Southeast Asianist here at CSIS. I've, I've been with CSIS since 2011, and since late 2015, I've been running this program, the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, which, as the name implies, is all about transparency. The idea is to use things like uh, satellite imagery analysis and remote sensing and mapping to help shine a light on what's happening in disputed waters in Asia, both because it helps clarify the issue, which is remarkably complicated uh, for policymakers here in the States, and also because it helps keep everybody, including China, honest by uh, removing the ability to change the status quo under the cover of darkness. So diving right in, would you be able to give us a background on the South China Sea conflict? Like, who are the players involved? What Have there been any major points of tension? And how long has this area been in contention? So when you talk about the South China Sea, you're talking about two different sets of disputes that are related, but the U.S. really only cares about one of them. So you have a dispute over territory. There are several island groups, the two most important being the Paracel Islands in the northwest of the South China Sea and the Spratly Islands in the south. Those are disputed by China and Vietnam in the case of all of them. And for some of the Spratlys, you also have the Philippines, Malaysia, and Brunei making claims. Taiwan makes the same claims as China. Those are historical disputes. Uh, Really, they are leftovers of our, as an international community's, failure to resolve who Japan had to give them back to at the end of World War II. The U.S. doesn't take a position on those historical disputes, just like the U.S. doesn't take a position on any sovereignty disputes in Asia. But you also have this dispute over the water and the airspace and the seabed. That's where the outside powers, including the U.S., get involved. So all of the Southeast Asian littoral states, the states around the South China Sea, which is all those that I mentioned, plus Indonesia, make some claim to waters and airspace in the South China Sea based on international law. China and Taiwan make a claim to effectively all of the South China Sea based on what they call the Nine-Dash Line, this line that was put on official Republic of China maps in 1947. Nobody entirely sure what it meant at the beginning, probably just a claim to the islands, but it has morphed over the decades to the point that China is claiming some kind of vague historic rights to all the waters, regardless of what international law has to say about the matter. And why has the dispute become increasingly heated over the past couple years? So we've seen violent incidents, both between China and its Southeast Asian neighbors and between China and outside players, including the U.S., escalate for about a decade now. 
that started really in 2009 when China submitted its nine-dash line, a map of the nine-dash line, as an official demarcation of its claim to a UN body called the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. That made this dispute much more concrete than it had been before. And it started a tit-for-tat series of diplomatic moves and then leading to, to violent efforts to actually enforce claims. Then at the end of 2013, we saw China start this large-scale island-building campaign. And in the space of just about three years, Beijing built 3,200 acres of new land in the Spratlys, constructed three air and naval bases on them, and has radically changed the status quo to the point that now China is able to project power everywhere in the nine-dash line, throughout the whole South China Sea, in places where five years ago it would have been very rare to see a Chinese ship. So you mentioned that China has been able to establish a lot of military and armed power using the islands that they've created in the South China Sea. For other countries such as the Philippines, is the dispute over these islands also militarily based, or is it a lot of it resources that are available in the water, shipping lanes? So we should be clear that the South China Sea disputes really aren't fundamentally military disputes for anybody, including China. There are military dimensions to them. And the armed forces on all sides have concerns and also use the disputes for their own purposes. For instance, the PLA obviously wants to use these island bases for power projection. But when you get right down to it, the disputes are about nationalism. They're about historical memory. They are fights over strategically insignificant rocks and moderately significant resources, but couched in issues of national sovereignty. And people have been fighting and dying over relatively insignificant spots of land and water since as long as there have been people. This is no different. So when we frame the South China Sea disputes as these binary choices, is it about military power projection? Is it about an anti-access strategy? Is it about oil and gas resources? We're missing the point. This is about what textbooks say. It's about unresolved issues from World War II. And especially, it's about the story that Beijing has fabricated and been telling itself for the last several decades, that these lands and waters were stolen by its neighbors. Now, on the ground or on the water, what it actually means is that for the Philippines or for Vietnam, in addition to that high-level sovereignty concern, it is becoming impossible for fishers to fish. It's becoming impossible to access seabed resources, especially natural gas it's becoming impossible to go about the normal economic activities that they are legally guaranteed under international law. So can you describe what the current situation is? So as I said, the, the biggest change has been this creation of Chinese air and naval bases in the Spratly Islands, which since at least late 2016 has been allowing Beijing to project power throughout the whole South China Sea in a way it never could before. So that has obvious concerns for, say, U.S. war planning and, and all of that. But on the ground, what it means is that if you sail out from Palawan in the Philippines or from central Vietnam, there's a good chance you're going to bump into a Chinese Coast Guard vessel, or more likely, a Chinese militia vessel, which is a fisherman operating as an arm of the state, perhaps armed, but who's pretending to just be a fisher. That means that China is intentionally using what we might call gray zone tactics, coercion and intimidation below the level of force, to slowly spread its personnel, its, its civilian forces throughout the South China Sea and push those of its neighbors out. So the biggest changes in the status quo have not been military. They've been the inability of the neighbors to access their own waters, their own resources. 
for Vietnam, we're seeing this at this very moment. For the last couple of months, there's been ongoing standoffs with China over oil and gas production off the coast. For the Philippines, for the last couple of years, it is focused on the ability of Filipino fishers to access their traditional fishing grounds in their own exclusive economic zone guaranteed by UNCLOS. And that situation is only going to get worse as the numbers of Chinese vessels and Chinese aircraft continue to increase, and as China improves its ability through radar and signals intelligence to monitor everything that moves in the South China Sea and interfere with that activity wherever it feels like it. Can you tell us a little bit about the stances of international courts on the claims put forward by the different countries involved in the situations? So we've only had one real ruling. Mm. After China seized control of Scarborough Shoal, which is a feature, high tide feature, a series of rocks off the coast of the Philippines, the former government in Manila brought a case against China in 2013, which was resolved by an arbitral body, which was established according to the rules of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, in 2016. That ruling went overwhelmingly in Manila's favor. So the core of the case was not about sovereignty, because no court can rule on who owns these islands unless both parties agree to go. You can't force the Chinese to arbitrate over who owns the islands. What the Philippines did is force China to this compulsory dispute settlement mechanism over what basis it was making claims, right? So whether or not the nine-dash line and historic rights are valid, or whether or not all countries have to make their claims based on international law, based on the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The court ruled that the nine-dash line is illegal. It ruled that any claims China makes must be based on these sets of maritime entitlements from its land, just like every other country, which means you have a territorial sea, you have an exclusive economic zone, you have a continental shelf. It also ruled that none of the disputed land features, these rocks and reefs, none of them are legally islands under international law, meaning that none of them are entitled to make their own waters. There are no exclusive economic zones from the Spratly Islands, for instance. It also did a bunch of other things. It said that China had illegally destroyed the marine environment. It said that China had illegally fished in other countries' exclusive economic zones and on and on. But the real important precedent here is that today, if we just follow what the court has said, the only disputes in the South China Sea should be the ones over the islands themselves and a very small pocket of about well, of territorial seas to 12 nautical miles around them. Anything that China in particular does beyond those small pockets, is illegal. Anything it does in the waters of the Philippines or Vietnam or Malaysia beyond 12 miles from the islands is in violation of international law. Are there any stakeholders in the conflict whose importance is not as recognized by the general public? I think there is a misunderstanding about the actual interests of outside parties here. So, you know, why does the U.S care about the South China Sea? Why does Japan, why do we see British and French and Australian ships and planes operating in the South China Sea? It's not fundamentally about military access or countering a Chinese anti-access air denial strategy, although warfighters will certainly say that there is a role there. It's fundamentally about, one, the rules themselves, that China's claims are so egregious, they're so contrary to fundamental principles of international law that if they were accepted by the international community, it would lead to the unraveling of decades of maritime law. Because it would effectively be saying that China gets to claim a 1,000 miles of water when every other member of the international community only gets 200. Second, it's about regional stability and the credibility of the U.S. as a security provider. 
The United States is not only an important security partner for all of the Southeast Asian countries, but it has a moral and legal obligation to defend one of them, the Philippines, who is a treaty ally and has been since 1951. Were China to resort to force, the U.S. would have to choose either respond to force itself or be made to look like a paper tiger. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? How can we understand U.S. commitment in the South China Sea area? Well, we should be judging U.S. involvement, the success or failure thereof, by whether or not it's securing U.S. interests. And if U.S. interests are primarily about upholding the rules-based order and defending our position as a security provider, which means defending the rights of the Philippines, then it's hard to argue that the U.S. is failing, that U.S. strategy has been insufficient. That's not to say that we have not done any good, and I think both this administration and the previous one suffer from the fact that they can't prove how much worse things would have been had they just sat on their hands. So U.S. involvement, whether it's through increased presence, ship visits, closer support for and coordination with the, the region, has slowed China's advance in the South China Sea over the last decade. But the fact remains that Beijing is in a much more advantageous position today vis-a-vis its control of these waters and airspace than it was a year ago, and it'll be in a better place a year from now if things don't change. At the heart of the problem is that while I think we can agree on why we care, we have no clear idea of the tools of power we're supposed to use to accomplish our goals. The U.S. Pacific Fleet, you know, the Pentagon, cannot decide where fishing rights are going to happen in the South China Sea. It cannot force China to clarify the nine-dash line and bring its claims into accordance with international law. These are not fundamentally military problems. These are diplomatic problems. Perhaps you could use military tools, you could use economic tools to help advance your interests, but they're not, at heart, military problems. And yet, the Pentagon has been the only agency in the U.S. government that has paid any consistent attention to the South China Sea, and they lack the tools to do the job that they have been given. So shifting more to the Philippines and the relationship with the United States. As a former colony of the U.S., uh, the Philippines has had a long history uh, with the various treaties, various partnerships, and with and building strategic relationships in the region. Some say that the strength of this relationship has recently declined under the Duterte administration. What are the implications of these changes on power dynamics in the region and on U.S.-Philippine relations? We should separate the U.S.-Philippine relationship from the U.S. relationship with Rodrigo Duterte. You know, the U.S. does not have an alliance with Duterte. It has an alliance with the Philippine state, the Philippine people. Rodrigo Duterte is ideologically anti-American. He has been since he was in college. Nothing the U.S. does will change that fact. And while he did come into office bombastically talking about separating from the U.S. and aligning himself with China, today we're actually in a better place than we were in 2016 when he took office. Largely because of the U.S. response to the siege of Marawi, in which uh, ISIS-linked fighters took over a city in in Mindanao for about five months, the special operations assistance, the ISR, that the U.S. provided was of vital assistance to, to the armed forces of the Philippines, and it helped them win the arguments they were having internally within the Philippines, that the U.S. remained an indispensable partner. And so since then, quietly, the security relationship has gotten back to where it was before and probably even better when you look at arms transfers, ship visits, joint training, etc. With Secretary of State Mike Pompeo stopping off in Manila after the Hanoi summit uh, with Kim Jong-un, 
on February 28th and clarifying that the U.S. will respond to any Chinese attack on Filipino assets anywhere in the South China Sea, we took another important step toward strengthening that alliance. That doesn't mean that things are all sunny, right? I mean, this remains brittle. Duterte is a populist, and he could blow this whole thing up with one bad speech. But for now, we seem to have repaired a lot of the damage done. At a deeper level, the Philippines remains vital to U.S. interests in the region and vice versa. And while the alliance has gone through ups and downs, and at the moment it is a bit adrift as we try to figure out what exactly this alliance means, it is important to keep in mind that in addition to the moral and legal obligations, that without the Philippines, the U.S. cannot succeed in its strategy in Asia. There is no U.S. strategy toward the South China Sea that does not involve the Philippines as a prime partner. And similarly, the Philippines cannot possibly secure its interest in the South China Sea without the United States. So it's pretty clear that the governments of the U.S. and the Philippines have a certain relationship. I'm not sure if you can speak on this, but how do people in the Philippines themselves view the conflicts in the South China Sea? What's interesting is that on pretty much every point of foreign policy, Rodrigo Duterte is in sharp disagreement with his own public. Ever since he took office, including just last week when the most recent quarterly polling from prominent Philippine outlet social weather stations came out, it's clear that overwhelming majority, over 80% of Filipinos, have high levels of trust and positive feelings about the U.S. The vast majority of Filipinos have no such warm feelings toward China. China had, I think, a negative 60 in trust rating in those polls. Over 90% of Filipinos say that the Philippines should assert its claims in the South China Sea. Uh, over 80% in most polls oppose the government's current South China Sea strategy, which is predicated on the idea that either A, if they're really, really nice to China, China will be nice back, which has proven false, or B, that there's nothing they can do about it anyway, so they should just let China take the South China Sea. In either case, the Filipino public is clearly at odds with that position. But, like in the U.S., most Filipinos don't vote based on foreign policy. And Rodrigo Duterte remains personally very popular on law and order concerns, on bread and butter issues, and just on personality politics, even if most people think that he's way off base on foreign policy. So going forward, um, shifting to the political sphere, do we see any dialogues between uh, countries and governments on this issue, or do we see any policy changes on either end? So there's a couple of diplomatic vehicles at work, none of which seem very likely to succeed, but that could change. So you have the, the most prominent one being the China-ASEAN negotiations toward a code of conduct, ASEAN being the Association of Southeast Asian Nations that involves all 10 of the Southeast Asian states. China and ASEAN signed a non-binding agreement, the Declaration on the Conduct of Parties at Sea, back in 2002. That agreement, as expected, did nothing to manage the South China Sea disputes. They spent the last 17 years talking about upgrading to a binding, more detailed declaration or a code of conduct. And in the wake of its loss at the arbitral tribunal in 2016 and the election of Duterte in the Philippines, the Chinese seized the moment of opportunity to change the narrative on the South China Sea and got serious to a degree about these negotiations. Today, they are the two sides, China and ASEAN, are approaching what is supposed to be the end of the first of three years of negotiations. The problem is that so far, none of the sides have shown any willingness to really compromise. And so we've seen leaked drafts of the text, and everybody's putting their maximalist positions on the table. China has demanded language that would ban all foreign companies from oil and gas operations anywhere in the South China Sea, which is not acceptable to its neighbors. It would have a veto power over all foreign military exercises in the South China Sea, which is not acceptable to its neighbors or to the U.S. Uh, but other countries, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, have all put in language that they also know is unacceptable. 
which tells you that for the time being, this is more about going through the motions. Nobody is really serious about getting a deal. And then you have a series of bilateral efforts, the, the foremost being between China and the Philippines under Duterte, to negotiate specific aspects of this, fisheries or oil and gas. But again, there, none of these seem to have a whole lot of light at the end of the tunnel. By this November, there was supposed to be a China-Philippines uh, deal on oil and gas. They're already walking back from that. And largely for the same reasons, that while they, they could get the basic principles, the non-binding stuff done in an MOU last November when Xi Jinping visited Manila, when it got down to brass tacks, neither side is actually willing to compromise. Okay. So we like to end all of our episodes with kind of a fun question. So all of us from USAI are really just wondering, how on earth was China able to physically construct islands? What a weird notion of what's fun. <laughs> um, yeah, so China engaged in an engineering marvel. The way Beijing did this, if you take the Spratly Islands, which is the, the place where most of the, the dredging and landfill happened, China has the world's largest fleet of what are called suction cutter dredgers. They're a specific type of, of dredging ship. A suction cutter dredger has a giant hose on one end, a big metal pipe on the other, to simplify. You stick the pipe down on the seabed, in this case directly onto the coral reef. It breaks up the reef, sucks it up the pipe, and then spews it out the hose, sometimes for a mile. That's how you end up making 3,200 acres of new land in about 18 months. So that's how you make an island. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. (laughs) So I think those are all the questions we have for you today. Thank you so much for your time and for speaking with us. This has been fantastic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Asia Unscripted. Our show page is usasiainstitute.org slash asiaunscripted, where you will find links to this and other Asia Unscripted episodes. You can find US Asia Institute on Facebook at facebook.com slash USAI1979, on Twitter at US Asia Institute, and on Instagram at us.asia.institute.